Hello, and welcome to The Manifesto with Gideon the Frequent Flyer on the Myelonomics Podcast Network. I am Gideon, the Frequent Flyer, and I'm joined today from the Running With Miles blog, Charlie Barkowski. Charlie, welcome to The Manifesto. Hi, Gideon. Thanks so much for having me on. It's great to have you. Uh, So here on The Manifesto, we like to get our plugs in up top. So uh, where can people find you online? Where can they find you on social media? Uh, Runningwithmiles.com is the, the blog's home. Uh, on Twitter, it's Run With Miles. On Instagram, it's also Running With Miles. And that's uh, uh, tw- Twitter. Is, I'm more frequently on Twitter than the others. And even that's all that, not that much. But uh, <laughs> blog is where I put most of my time for now. Fantastic. So the first thing people will see when they find you on Twitter, which is where I mostly know you from, um, is that you ran six solo marathons on six continents in under five days. First of all, is that true? <laughs> Absolutely, it's true. It's actually, it was actually my second attempt at it as well. Uh, first one was a few years before, and I only did five, five, five. Uh, so, yeah, that's, uh, that is true. It's still, uh, still stands out kind of vividly in my mind, even though there's so much crammed into such a few days like that. So, I guess the... A question anyone would have when they see that is, how is it just geographically possible? Uh, I know that we have we have high speed jet planes now, um, but the continents are still pretty far apart from each other. So how did you uh, how did you manage to get to six continents in under five days? Well, it uh, it was something when I first had the idea for it the first time around. I found out after I started my planning, somebody actually had gone and done. Some, uh, all seven and seven days. And I was like, oh man, Antarctica is not going to happen because that's just, well, for most of us, that's way outside the realm of, of possibility most of the time. But so I, when I did this last one of six, six and five, I decided to try it again because the same guy, somebody I'm, I'm friends with, he organizes uh, a fantastic paid event where they do seven marathons, seven continents, seven days, and they're all organized marathons, but it costs 34,000 euros. So right now, current rate's probably about $42,000. They do get a private business jet to fly around, so they don't have to deal with schedules of airlines and such. But I was like, okay, I'm going to go do it on my own, just using miles and points. We'll do the whole thing in first in business, and we'll see how it goes. So I started in Greece and flew from here to... Cairo, where actually I ended up having to do it on a hotel treadmill because it was in the middle of the night and then flew to Abu Dhabi, which that was the hardest since it was early September. Uh, So it was about 113 degrees during the run and then flew from Abu Dhabi to Sydney, where it was like 51 degrees. It was fantastic. And then flew from Sydney on one of the probably least traveled routes i would guess in the world as from sydney to santiago chile uh i think there's only well there was pre-covid like i think maybe three flights on that route and then uh finished up by flying to washington dc and finished up 
uh, there just under five days after I started. I see. So, so the real uh, the real hack there is knocking out the three continents within the the triangle of uh, Europe, Africa, Asia, right? Yeah, that's that all took place within. I think it was something like twenty twenty six hours or twenty nine hours or something. So you get very little rest time. The first from the first run, it was I think about three and a half hours of travel to Cairo and then just another three and a half, four hours after that. So trying to, trying to get that done in the time frame. you had the tightest actually ended up being Chile because we arrived an hour and a half late from Sydney and, uh, we are not, we, I, uh, but that was actually worked out best. I was, I was doing it based at a Hyatt hotel and, the manager there had set up a whole finish line set up for me, uh, had his staff out there. That some of them even ran a couple of miles with me. So that kind of gave me a boost. So it ended up being my fastest during the, during the whole, uh, whole trip as well. So that worked out great. I made it just in time. What was the, uh, I assume that you have this, uh, 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 memorialized somewhere. What was your uh, fastest time, your slowest time? And what was the average of all, uh, all six marathons? My fastest time was Chile. It was uh, four hours and 35 minutes. Slowest time ended up being in D.C., but I actually felt really good. And it was slower than I originally planned because I had no time obligations anymore. And I actually had Glenn from the military uh, frequent flyer blog. Uh, he He's a he's a. Uh, an army general and he wanted to do it with me and he had never run any distance past 13 miles. So that was his first time doing 26. So I just like, let's take our time and make, sh- make sure you get to the end. And so the average I think was about four fifty, four fifty five or something like that. Five Oh two, somewhere around there, which is about an hour and a half off my best time. Uh, so I assume that you don't normally run six marathons every five days. Um, did you, uh, I don't know exactly how to put this. Did you, um, gain a new appreciation or a new understanding of your body's, uh, limits or, or how it responds? I mean, I'm just thinking of the, the altitude changes between, uh, basically sea level in, in Greece and Cairo, um, to Chile, uh, to Washington DC, plus the 30,000 foot you know, jet flights. Um, did, did you sort of have any, have any weird, uh, or like greater understanding of your body coming out of that experience? <laughs> yeah, there was, uh, some things I, I trained in some pretty extreme, uh, setups before the run. So I kind of knew what my body was going to end up feeling like, but, uh, you know, trying to run to catch a flight, that's something that you gain a new appreciation for when your legs just don't really want to respond that quickly. Um, and then food, uh, I was, like I said, I, I ended up doing everything in first or business. So the food ended up being a lot better than the first time I did it, which was an economy. And, uh, on Etihad, I flew their, uh, A380 with their first apartment. And, uh, when the chef heard what I was doing, he, he's like, okay, what do you, what do you need right now for your muscles? What can I make for you? basically just brought me anything and everything I could think of for the entire 14 hour trip to make sure I was refueled. And I, even with all uh, drinking water was probably the biggest thing I knew I needed to do because flying will dehydrate you anyway. And then running all that time and not having regular sleep schedules and uh, meal schedules. So I drank a ton of water and I still ended up losing, even with 
as much as I tried packing in with food, I think I lost like seven pounds over the course of the week. Um, so uh, finally, sort of on your on your general background, um, because your blog is focused sort of split between the, the travel hacking side and back when organized marathons were taking place on the marathon side. Um, I'm curious whether you were a, a distance runner or a travel hacker first and whether one led into the other. Did you get into travel hacking to be able to afford to fly to uh, distant marathons or did you find out about travel hacking through the marathoning community? Is, was there any connection between the two or was it just a coincidence? My travel hacking part kind of came in stages when, you know, I, I, I signed up for a credit card, I think back in, I don't know, maybe 2002 and realizing, wow, you know, this is what, then was, that was before I started running. But I was like, wow, you can do some fun things with some miles. And so I just kind of started collecting them just more out of fun just to see the, the balance grow, to see what I could use them for. Um, but then on the actual earning side, as far as uh, elite benefits and things like that, that that came on my first round the world run when I picked up, uh, I think it was, it might've been, this is 2009, I think it, I might've picked up Delta Gold status in the one week that I did that first run. Uh, run. And when I got my first upgrade email on a domestic flight, I was like, oh, wow, this is really cool. I, I, I kind of didn't realize that. So 2009 was kind of where everything started coming together. I had the earning and then started doing some more redeeming. And then the two worlds kind of collided when I ran a marathon in Fargo, North Dakota, which, you know, it's it's uh, not a place a lot of people think of. And so getting there can be really expensive. I think the, the paid ticket was something like $590 round trip from Rochester, New York. And I used uh, 25,000 US Airway miles and you know, the five bucks or whatever at the time it was. And I was sitting next to a guy at the pre-race dinner and he said, yeah, I had to pay like 800 bucks to get here. I said, he said, how about, how about you? I said, five bucks. He's like, what? Tell me about this. And I was like, and then other people who were under started coming around to hear about it. And I was like, wow, you know, people could really expand some of their race horizons if they got into this as well. So that kind of got the idea going. And uh, eventually the blog was born out of that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Instead of having a, a once a year splurge to go to a marathon, you could you can attend a lot more uh, a lot more marathons if you're not paying so much for uh, for airfare, right? Um, yeah. So um, let's talk a little bit about the blog. Um, see, it started around that 2009 2010 period. You said uh, it was kind of like a just a thought at that point. I don't think I, I think uh, I think it was 2012 maybe that it. That I finally started it. And uh, did you start it on Boarding Area or um, after you started the blog, did you reach out to Boarding Area? How, I, uh, you've now been on there for a long time. I think it's the only place that I've, I've ever read your blog. Um, so what was that process like of uh, being invited or, or asking to join the Boarding Area community? Well, uh, I, I, I was familiar with all the blogs in Boarding Area at the time and uh, I, I, was, I was trying to grow... I had a lot of people because I used to book travel all the time for pretty much everybody that knew me and so I was just getting questions. So that was another thing. I was like, okay, I'm just going to, I started the blog thinking, actually, I remember telling my wife, I'm just, I think every Sunday night I could sit down and pound out seven articles for the week and literally it'll take me an hour and I'll be done, you know, and this would be great. Well, that's fine for everything that's just like right there on the tip of your tongue to do. And then after that, it takes a little bit more time and you come up with different ideas that take more research and this and that. So 
I was trying to grow the readership and it was taken. It was like, wow, this is not taken off like I thought. And so I had emailed boarding area in, uh, I think April of 2013 and asked, uh, I just said, you know, I started a new blog that's, uh, I'm trying to target runners and, uh, that's that demo is typically there's a lot of the people are people that do travel. They just don't know how to use their miles or people that want to be able to travel to different races and want to know how to do that for free since races can chew up a good amount of their, their running money between that and running shoes, gear. And Randy Peterson called me, uh, I think it was like three weeks later and said he liked the idea and uh, they wanted me to come on. So yeah, it was about, I think when I finally was moved over there, it was like September of 2013. And when you started it, as you say, you had a lot of runner friends that were (laughs) interested, obviously, in how you're traveling and spending so little money. Um, But when you started the blog or when you joined boarding area, did you envision it as a side hustle as a passion project? Uh, did you want to turn it into a full-time job? Um, there are obviously only a few people that do that, that are able, able to achieve that. But, uh, uh, was that sort of the lifestyle you dreamed of? What was your, what was your vision of the blog, say five or 10 years in the future? It was, I, 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 I saw it as like a passion thing. I just enjoy, I, I'm, I'm a big talker anyway. And, uh, as, as far as, well, I mean, not like, you know, just, uh, uh, promising stuff, but I, I like I like to talk. I like to explain things, and so that came easy. And I just enjoyed the opportunity to put all those thoughts down to try to help people and take them through. So step one, step two, this is what you can do. And uh, so it was like a passion thing, which I thought you know maybe I can cover some of my paid travel down the road with this. And uh, I never, I didn't, I knew that some people were making some big money on it, and. Uh, I had hoped to possibly you know, get that as a serious side business going. But uh, even though I, I I was an affiliate with a direct affiliate with Chase and American Express uh, for a while uh, years ago, and it there were some things about those relationships that just didn't work for me as far as how I wanted the blog to 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 work for readers. So after that, I kind of knew that credit card affiliates were not going to be where the money was going to come in for me. So it was, it's still, it brings in enough that it keeps it interesting for me to do and uh, justifies my time with it and uh, also continues to be something I enjoy. So. Yeah, for sure. So the obvious question, um, because uh, it is focused or is built built around the running community, um, has the absence of in-person running events uh, affected your traffic in a notable way? I, I've noticed that you haven't been posting any less uh, since the pandemic started, uh, but have you, uh, have you noticed that you're getting uh, fewer runners or has the uh, traffic stayed more or less the same or is it different population? Have you, have you noticed anything like that about the kind of traffic you're getting? Well, the funny thing is you write something about travel or a new deal of this kind and this and this, and those things always end up getting more readers than some of the running things. And so I, I still do them anyways. Those are complete me. I, I'm interested in this. I, I know there's others that are, and some of them do take off pretty well. And, uh, but yeah, actually the running content, I started getting a lot more traffic from that than I ever had from runners when everything started canceling last year. Unfortunately, that's when a lot of them ended up finding me was, oh, wow, this marathon got canceled and this one and this one. And 
Um, last year was hard for as far as, well, it's for most so many people, it was hard with uh, a lot of different things as far as uh, web-based things with readers and content. And But at last year actually ended up being the year I made the most in the blog and had the most visitors by a huge amount, by millions, um, which was all because it started one day last April that certified financial planner friend of mine had asked a question about something with the first stimulus package that didn't know something about a calculator. I was like, Oh, if you don't know about it, then I bet you a lot of people. And I put a post out the next day. Cause I always like to help people with information, whatever I could provide. And over the next two days, I had 300,000 views on the site. I was like, Whoa, okay. Well, if I have to pivot a little bit to answer this interest, I'll, I'll do that too. So I've, I've had some of those. And I think the, Biggest I had was about, uh, I think I had like 750,000 in like four days or something. So yeah, not as much in the running, but pivoting a little bit to some people's interests and how things have changed in the last year kind of helped keep the blog growing a little bit. Um, so now I want to uh, talk a little bit about your situation uh, living and working in Greece, which I've been trying to get an uh, international uh, blogger on the podcast for a while uh, because it's so interesting and there's so so little information about there about the experience of being an American expat. Uh, so I wanted to, to sort of pick your brain a little bit to start off just uh, at the broadest level. Uh, when did you end up in Greece and where in Greece are you? We moved here back in 2013, and we're in northern Greece, the second largest city called Thessaloniki. Uh, if you look on a map at Greece where the Aegean Sea comes up, right where it tucks into a uh, little part of the land, that top of that part is Thessaloniki. And so we're about six hours from Athens by car or 40 minutes by plane when we used to be able to do that. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's beautiful. We get very hot weather in the summer. Uh, we've actually had two snowstorms this winter, which is uh, <laughs> not typical. But uh, now we're back to mid 60s, so yeah, it's a beautiful place. So you've now been there six, seven years. Um, when you first moved there, was it intended to be a permanent move? Is it still intended to be a permanent move? Uh, was it meant to be a short-term stint that you fell in love with the place and turned into a permanent move. Um, how do you think about the, the decision to spend so much time living abroad? It was uh, originally, it was like a one-year commitment. Uh, we were helping out at a church here and we, we did a one-year commitment and then things were, the way things were going ended up being two and then three and then four. And it's like, I guess we're here now. And uh, yeah, we, we, we fell in love with the place, which, you know, you tell people in Greece that, uh, yeah, I'm from America. I live here. And it's like, wait, why? But then you tell people in America, I live in Greece. Like, oh, that's cool. So it's two different perspectives based on what people here think that we've left to come live here. But it's really a, a beautiful country, great people, and a nice a nice way of life here too. In general, uh, once you settled in and started, you know, actually living in Greece, you know, doing your grocery shopping and uh, going out to restaurants and uh, going out to theaters, uh, just sort of the, the experience of living in Greece, what has um, surprised you most? Um, obviously, a lot of people know that if they go live in a country that speaks a different language, then they might have trouble communicating. Uh, but what was the thing that like jumped out at you as being totally unexpected about living in Greece or living in the EU, um, the, the banking system or the, you know, uh, what, what was the most difficult to adjust to over there? That would, I'm, I'm from New York state and so 
going from there where things are more or less you're scheduled with things and people abide by those schedules and then coming here where schedules you know they're quite flexible i guess would be a nice way to put that about certain things so like you know i make a meeting to with somebody and it'll be 45 50 minutes later no phone call nothing and then they'll just show up and there's not even like a, oh sorry about that it's just like yeah this is what happens so it took me a while to gain some level of patience with just you know again i'm the i'm the foreigner so i'm not trying to change people to my my way of living from the u.s it's just something i had to adjust to as far as the sense of time and so it, it took a little bit but um, I'm, I'm fine with it now. I've, I've accommodated, I've gotten used to it. The other thing that was just very frustrating was dealing with government for things like permits and all that. I do all that on my own. And I explain to people, it's like living at the DMV pretty much. <laughs> it's just that bad. Uh, yeah. So, um, I, I'm sure that everybody has sort of the same questions I have, so we, we can cover this in as much uh, as much as little detail as you like. But um, do you now have a permanent residence in Greece? Does that allow you to work elsewhere in the EU? Um, I know that the governments handle their own visa issuance, but they also have this freedom of movement. Uh, do, do you have a sort of understanding of of your role in the European Union as a Greek resident? Yeah, it's, it, we have residence. It's not uh, permanent residence, and which it gives us basically everything we'd get with permanent residence. It's just a different length of the permit. It's it's nice because yeah, even during the lockdown here in the EU, it's allowed us to come and go as we please from the U.S. back to here. And yeah, it's 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 uh, it makes things a lot easier. It's just trying to find where you fit within the laws because the. The authorities here really don't, you know, they don't look outside of a very narrow perspective of what the book says. And so if you fall just a little bit to the left or right of that, they're not going to do anything about it. So you have to go through the laws and find for yourself how you fit in with it and why they need to do this. And then it, 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 it takes some time. A lot of visits, like I think I went to the government office, like probably for the last permit renewal, something like 16 times. It doesn't matter sometimes about that things don't make sense. They'll just agree it doesn't make sense, but that's how it works. And it's like uh, so many stories of circular logic where it's like, okay, but to get this, I need this. And you're telling me to get this, I need to do this, but I need to have that to get that. Yes, that's impossible. Right. Well, that's not any help. So then you have to figure it all out on your own and... It can make for interesting times and memories for sure. Do you have, are, are you enrolled in the Greek national health insurance system or as a uh, as part of your residence permit, do they require you to buy a, a travel insurance policy despite the fact that you live there? Uh, how, how does healthcare work there? Yeah, that's actually, they do have, uh, uh, they do have their, uh, the, the Greek nationalized healthcare, which people can actually pay more for semi-private to, since the public hospitals are really kind of backed up with a lot of different various things. But that is was one of the major conditions is you cannot be using their Greek medical infrastructure at all as far as the, the financial part of it. You have to have your own outside insurance plan. You could buy something in Greece, but they want it to be international. So um, yeah, we have to we have to do that, and it, it at least gives us the, uh, one of the hospitals in their network. A private hospital is not far from us, and we actually, unfortunately, we we are there quite a lot over the last few years. So it's nice that we at least get reimbursed eventually. Yeah, and is that a private Greek uh, health insurance plan that you have, or a private American health insurance plan that for for international travel insurance or whatever it's called? 
Yeah, no, it's a uh, it's a it's based out of the U.S. It's called I Am Global. That that uh, they actually do a lot. I, I've used them for short trips, such as I think you can get a medical insurance for a week trip or two week trip for as cheap as like sixteen or twenty dollars, and it covers a lot of various things. That and I know that many of the places I've had to have insurance improved that they accept it. So that work that works that works very well. Um, in the last couple of years, our two of our kids diagnosed with Crohn's disease. So we had to go through a ton of different tests and treatment stuff here and they, it works with all that. So since they're in the network, it, it makes it for a lot quicker than it would if we had to go through a Greek company. Uh, I had a, a few other just sort of logistical things. Cause this is, these are the questions that I come up with. Um, do you have, uh, access to the Greek, um, pension system or are you saving through uh, Vanguard or, you know, Fidelity in the United States? Do you, do you have a retirement savings plan or anything like that? Yeah, it's not anything here, which which here there's not. I mean, uh, one of my friends was just telling me last night that after 25 years in law enforcement here, his military and police pension will be 300 euros a month. So that's, that's really bad. <laughs> so yeah, everybody that can would has something in the U.S. and doesn't do anything with the Greek system because it's just there's really no future for that here. The interest rates on anything here, if you're if you're the one trying to gain from it, are pretty bad. But if you try to buy anything, the interest rates are really high. I think housing in some areas is up to like fifteen percent. Wow! And and you mentioned that you have your kids there with you. Um, are they enrolled in the Greek public schools or are there um, English speaking schools that you send them to? Private schools? Um, how how does their integration into the Greek uh, system work? Yeah, that is another thing which a lot of people you know there's advantages to putting the kids into a Greek school or any country school since it helps you to get more of um you have to you're forced to get with the language really quick based because of a lot of different things with our situation it was better for uh we work with a uh an American school and uh it worked uh, English speaking and it just works well best for our schedule as far as if people are coming for visits or for going places and things like that so so now just to touch a little bit on the pandemic and how it's affected you and how it's affected Greece. Um, now that the vaccine is being rolled out more or less worldwide, um, have you seen uh, vaccines being delivered in Greece? What's their, what's their current status on vaccination? Right now they're working through 60 year old and up. Um, it's, it's been, it, I think they've done, uh, I think 700,000 so far out of a country of 10 million. So it was a little bit slow in the beginning part because the EU did not get what they had originally anticipated and even paid for from the original, from uh, pharmaceutical companies. So they've, they're trying to, even now, I think they're going to, the EU is going to certify the new Johnson and Johnson one in the next couple of weeks. And then that will help, help with some of the, the delay as well. But uh, they, you know, they're trying desperately to get ready for, a summer tourist season, which they need to, they know they need to have their elderly for sure vaccinated. And that's been the reason we've, we're right now in the middle of our third lockdown since last March. And lockdowns here are quite a bit different from what most in the U.S. probably experience with it. Um, I joke with my mom when she says, yeah, we, we, we're in lockdown too. I said, mom, Walmart's open. You're not locked down. You know, it's like not the same thing. It's, we have, um, uh, right now the only thing open are supermarkets and, uh, uh, some, some diners you can do takeaway or have delivery and uh, gas stations. 
and everything else is closed. Wow. And what kind of uh, restrictions are there on, obviously, the weather there is a little bit uh, nicer than it is in some parts of, of the U.S. Uh, are there any restrictions on outdoor activity? Are the beaches open or uh, uh, outdoor exercise allowed? Oh, yeah. They, they, uh, they have, you have to send a uh, text message for permission to a government phone number anytime you're going to go out and you have one of six qualified reasons to go. Like shopping, you're allowed two hours from the time you leave your house to the time you get back. And exercise is supposed to be short. It's supposed to be near your home or short distance if for most for most cases. Or you can walk a pet. This uh, kindergarten through fourth grade is open. So if you're taking your child to school, you can do that. And if an elderly person is in need, you can help them with that. Basically, that's that's it. And if you don't send that and the police stop you, or if you're out without one of those reasons, it's a three hundred. 300 euro fine and they've collected tens of millions in fines in the last year for that. So they are pretty strict on not, not everybody in Fort, not all the police officers enforce it, but uh, the government's pretty strict as far as what you can do. And uh, even like now that all retail places are closed, they have, uh, they have our grocery store, like I'm sure grocery stores in your area, they have maybe like they'll sell pots and pans and maybe even like towels or something like that. But the government ruled that since those specific stores that have like a home goods store, since those are closed, that the supermarket cannot sell anything that would be sold at another place like that. So like they bought, they, they cover all the shelves of pots, pans, towels, little kid toys or art supplies and all that stuff is covered up. You can't buy it. So that makes it difficult if you need stuff like that. For sure. And setting aside enforcement, is your impression that compliance has been pretty good? Are, are people mostly uh, staying at home until the wave passes? They were in the first uh, lockdown, which lasted 10 weeks. And then the, the second, it was in the winter. So it wasn't, you know, people weren't anxious to get out. But right now, people are done with it. It's like 60, 70, 80 degrees in different parts of the country. And they, it's just, anybody that lives in the city, they've been really unable to go out and do much of anything for a long time. So yeah, people are going out a lot more frequently now. So we do have a curfew on the weekends at 6 p.m. And if you're out after 6 p.m., you're going to get a ticket. So that kind of, on weekends, you will never see anybody out after 6 o'clock. On weekdays, it's 9 p.m. But they're trying really hard to get, they, they're, the Greece, Greece's goal is to buy their Orthodox Easter, which is May 3rd. They want to have things open again since and let everybody get out. So we'll see how that works in the next two months. Yeah, I, I remember that from uh, last year when everything uh, everything would be open by Easter. So final 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 point here is uh, I'm just curious because I'm talking to a, to a long distance runner, a ultra long distance runner. Uh, how are you staying in shape? Are you staying in shape? Are you training? Are you conditioning at home? Um, and in general, do you have a sense of when the first marathons uh, will resume? Do, will there be a marathon at the Tokyo Olympics? Uh, will the Tokyo Olympics happen? Um, and uh, do you think your your uh, times are going to get uh, better, worse, or stay the same in your first marathon after lockdown? <laughs> well, uh, I'm actually uh, I'm a very goal oriented runner, so I if I don't have a marathon on the calendar, I I find it hard sometimes, or I find it easier to let something get in the way of a run for the day or something like that. So I had to find things to push myself a little bit more, especially during January February months. So I signed up for some virtual events. Uh, I just signed up for the most difficult event I've signed up for. It's uh, in April for 16 days, 
in 16 days, you have to, I have to run 267 miles. So that average is just under 17 miles a day. So that I'm, I'm working up to that now. I'm at, I'll be up to hundred miles a week in a couple of, in a couple of few weeks. And so that kind of pushes me to get out more. Um, I, everybody, all the marathons have pretty much put everything into the fall. So for the first time ever, there's a series called the world marathon majors. It's six major marathons around the world, like Boston, New York, uh, London, uh, Tokyo, and for the first time ever, all six are going to be within like a one month span. Tokyo is normally in the winter, Boston and London are in April. And so now they're all going to be within like five weeks. They're, I think the first marathons, first big ones are slated to start sometime in uh, late September. So, and as far as Tokyo, uh, I, from everything I've heard from people, I, I definitely think the Olympics are going to happen, but it's not going to be the Olympics that anybody had anticipated originally and it's probably going to be. Uh, not as much fun for the athletes since the, the crowds are going to be far down from what they would otherwise be. And the marathon there, I hope because of all this, they actually move it back to Tokyo. They moved it eight hours away, which all the marathoners were really upset about. So hopefully they are able to move back to Tokyo since, you know, it's be, it's a nice thing to be able to compete in the city where every, all this stuff's happening anyways. And I love running in cities and seeing everything on display and seeing uh, seeing different parts of major international cities. So that would have been taking something away from them also, even though they're obviously focused on winning and not just sightseeing on the run. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the crowds obviously are bigger, uh, the places where people live instead of uh, <laughs> the countryside, right? For sure, for sure. So yeah, I, I, I would hope I, my first marathon will probably be, my guess will be, I'm, I probably will look at something for November. Um, if not, then def definitely January. There's a marathon I've done in Israel a number of times. It was actually my first and my ended up being, and then like 11 years after that was my best, um, in Tiberias and that's in January. So I may, I may look to go back there again. Uh, and, uh, that's, th th there's a lot to choose from. I'm, I'm hoping to maybe find a hundred mile race sometime in the fall around here. So. We'll see about that too. Great. So um, moving on to our last section here, I have been uh, really trying to find a travel hacker who lives abroad to sort of get a sense of, of what it's like over there. Because even when, I, when I'm overseas, I try to remember um, whether a given credit card you know, offers uh, rewards on grocery stores only in the United States, or whether it uh, whether bonuses spend at, at grocery stores overseas as well, and there there are a lot of things like that to to keep track of. So I know on the blog you cover all the usual credit card deals, all the increased sign up bonuses, things like that. Uh, but I'm wondering, first of all, are you able to participate in those deals? Uh, will will you know Chase ship you a Sapphire Preferred to Greece, or do you have a U.S. address that you have credit cards? mailed to or are you sort of sitting out all these uh sign-up bonuses while you're over there oh no no I, I i definitely take part in my i do have an address in the u.s and uh we chase for instance will if if i were to uh their their chip cards are not perfect and i've had the chips fail on me and in in the u.s that might not be a big deal in europe where every, almost all the machines are set up for chip and pin that's a big deal to not have it so they've 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 shipped. They've shipped it to me here. I think it was like two, three days it took to get here. Uh, but yeah, as far as like what bonus, uh, what bonuses work for which, it's it can be a little bit more nuanced. But very generally, 
Amex is horrible and Chase is fantastic as far as bonus points for different types of spending. I mean, American Express does not, most of their bonus categories don't work outside of the U.S. Uh, for travel, it might, but for things like grocery stores, uh, gas stations, they'll always tag U.S., U.S., U.S. And I personally think, you know, they've done a great job at, at gaining a more of a worldwide base, but they're really still kind of shooting themselves in the foot as far as being a traveler's preferred card in the top of the wallet when they don't extend some of those category bonuses to anybody, which Chase does. Chase, even some places that there'll be some obscure little shop that happens to have their credit card uh, registered as, you know, some merchant category that I would never have guessed and I end up getting bonus points for. And it's like, oh yeah, that's great. You know, <laughs> so Chase is always something I, I use them more than I do American Express for sure. Just uh the pure bonus part of it. Yeah, a lot of people, uh, myself very much included, uh, ignore the the uh, slight uh, adjustment when it says that you know an American Express gold card earns uh, earns bonus points at U.S. supermarkets. You don't you don't know how much work the U.S. is doing there, um, because obviously most people spend most of their money in the United States, uh, and then uh, finding out that uh, your grocery store card isn't a grocery store card whenever you're overseas is quite a, quite a disappointing development, obviously. Yes, for sure. And then also the other thing that sometimes I forget, it's just one of those things like when you have, typically if you're traveling internationally on a trip, you take maybe your favorite two, three, four cards, five cards, if it's, you know, for those of us that have a bunch of them. But when you live outside the U.S., you pretty much have all of them with you. So there'll be times I'm like, oh, you know, I, I was back in the U.S. and I have like, for instance, I had to chase freedom unlimited with me and I go to use it. And right after I was like, oh, man, I forgot I had a, the foreign transaction fee on this card. So while a lot of issuers have done well at dumping that, which that's, again, another thing. American Express has done great about dumping that foreign transaction fee, but they still won't give me bonus points on. It's like, you know, keep the foreign transaction fee and give me my five time points or something like that. But uh, yeah, that, that little reminder of, oh, man, I just... So what a rookie move to use something like that. But when you have all of them with you, you kind of sometimes don't don't remember those little things that you would if you were going on a trip. Yeah, that's that's such a great point. Uh, so when you do um, sign up for new credit cards, whether you get them shipped to your U.S. address and then have them sent to you uh, in Greece, um, there are often obviously those three thousand, six thousand, fifty thousand uh, dollar minimum spend requirements. Uh, do you find that those are easier or harder to meet uh, overseas? Like, does your does your landlord in Greece take credit cards for payment, uh, for example? Uh, how how do you meet those minimum spend requirements? Just through normal spend, or uh, do you have ways of uh, spending more money or, or accelerating uh, spending? That's actually something that here in Greece they are starting to come around. Especially COVID's kind of bringing a lot more digital upgrades here, but a lot of places would rather not do credit cards so if you go to some shops they they just avoid it i can't do rent on it uh they just started allowing me to be able to do electric bills on it which electric can be kind of expensive some some months so that's good i can i can pay for fuel for heating and all that type of stuff i can do that with credit cards my kids hospital bills which do end up getting reimbursed can be sizable and i can put those on my card and so that helps but then also i i have a couple niche uh, electronic uh, markets that I know that, you know, okay, I know when I see something pop up, I know what I can get for that. And so I can maybe make a little bit of a profit, but mostly uh, buy something that might be two, three, four thousand dollars and flip it and at least break even, if not get a little bit more for the trouble. So my family in the US doesn't mind. I'll have that stuff shipped to them and then get it back out 
and sell it to somebody or something like that. So yeah, I, I, I never end up having a problem meeting the spending either through here or buying stuff in the U.S. to sell or something. I didn't realize you're not supposed to drop shit from Amazon, which I guess makes total sense that you're not supposed to do that. And so there's one day a deal where they had some, one of their deals of the day, they had these watches that were some ridiculous retail price that actually was what people sold them for. And they're 60, 70% off. So I just went to eBay and just started listing a ton of them and uh, at 30% off retail. And every time somebody would buy, I would go to Amazon, buy it at the huge discount and have it shipped to them. <laughs> so I, I met uh, met a couple spendings on that day with that, and I didn't I didn't get warned by Amazon, but I did find out later on that yeah that was a no no, and I did have some some of the people that bought them were like kind of unhappy when they found out that oh I could have just gone to Amazon and saved thirty percent more. Um, so I don't know how uh, involved you are in the manufactured spend side at all, but uh, there are obviously some opportunities besides reselling, um, uh, purely online opportunities like buying like e-visa gift cards and e-mastercard uh, gift cards and doing online serve loads are you able to do any any kind of manufactured spend like pure manufactured spend uh, from overseas or uh, do you stay away from that i used to um back in the vanilla days i i did a lot of that and then uh here it just became a little bit more difficult or sometimes especially buying ca- cash like products online if i forget to turn a vpn on it'll get flagged or uh, something like that. And then you remember to turn the VPN on and then it flags it because it's unusual traffic because you were just coming from Europe and now you're coming from Southern California. So uh, I, I don't do it much anymore just because the hassle was ended up being more than I was getting out of it. But uh, yeah, I, I, I miss it. Uh, I used to have a couple of things in the US that worked really, really well that was little effort and no risk at all. And big points and so not having access to that anymore is kind of kind of a bummer but i'm glad people still are able to still able to work it in 2021 yeah and then um finally here i wanted to ask the the flip side um are there travel hacking opportunities that are only available to you um whether that's uh, because of special eu regulations i know they they uh, have special treatment of canceled flights and delayed flights and uh in the european union or um sweet spots for mileage runs an airport that has particularly long distance particularly cheap flights uh award availability from greece um anything like that uh have, have you been pleasantly surprised by uh, any loyalty programs while you've been over there? Yeah, like I, I just before we moved here, uh, I became a, a G in gold, which they're in the Star Alliance. And back then it used to be super simple and they really had, was no expiration date on when the gold would expire. And now they've, they've closed that loophole and a lot of U.S. based have lost uh, their gold status, which, you know, what it's still actually super easy to retain. I have to fly four Aegean flights per year and rack up 12,000 miles and I have Star Alliance gold for another year. So it also comes with like a bunch of perks at hotels here in Greece, uh, discounts on restaurants, uh, discounts on some shopping networks. Uh, they do have a shopping portal. It's not great, but it works. But like their credit card, is the Aegean credit card, the biggest offer they have is you can earn 5,000 miles when you sign up, which <laughs> it's, it's like very bad, especially since the GN last November was giving away 5,000 miles if you signed up for an account for free, a uh, frequent flyer account. So it, the credit card market here is really not that strong. Just their banking rules are a little bit more strict than the U.S. Some of their fee, fees are 
capped a little bit tighter. So they, they don't really have incentive to get people big sign up bonuses. But as far as traveling, um, Athens actually can be a sweet spot sometimes. For some reason, Greece is one of the cheaper places in Europe to fly from to the US uh, with business class deals sometimes. I've seen them as little as uh, like $800 round trip from Greece. Uh, Qatar Airways a couple of years ago, uh, it was, I think, $900 for business class from here to the US and back in economy, which I did not do that, but it was cheaper than buying a round trip economy ticket at the time. So it was, it took me from Athens to Doha to New York. And uh, that was a really good deal. I ended up having uh, flight credits for anyway and picked up a lot of miles. But Athens to Singapore, sometimes they'll have for like $200. A big one last year was with Saudi. It was, uh, I think from here to Madagascar was something like, might've been, oh, it's Mauritius for $550 round trip in business class through Saudi Arabia, uh, which some, I know a lot of people would balk that a little bit, but there's like, there are some pretty interesting deals that come up from here to Africa round trip on Egypt air and, uh, uh, Turkish. So there are some options there's, but then flying sometimes through Europe, like I, I went to Iceland a few years ago and it took me like 16 hours to get to Iceland. It's like, I could have gotten there quicker from New York, but just based on it, uh, the different airports, the vast number of airlines here, who flies where and the times and everything is just, it could be crazy sometimes trying to get to, like Barcelona. I think it would, no, I'm not sorry, not Barcelona, Florence, Italy. Uh, we were going to go there a couple of years ago for some event, and it was the quickest way to get there was taking 19 hours. And who knows what it's going to be post-COVID. Uh, they've really tightened up a lot of the schedules. I think I saw something the other day that said Lufthansa last month flew 89% of the flights that they had done in the same time frame of 2019. So European airlines are still slowly and bitterly getting back up. It's not... They don't really have, I mean, in, in Greece right now, it's still, you can not allowed to fly domestically unless you have an emergency or some special circumstance. So a lot of people just aren't flying. And obviously EU citizens without, like, with a few exceptions are allowed to fly to the U.S. right now. I'm, I'm surprised at the number of Americans that are still finding loopholes to get into Europe. But uh, yeah, the flights from U.S. to here are still pretty full. So somebody's still coming here. <laughs> Yeah, you you've actually just made me think. Um, Gian Gold is is obviously great for the um, lounge access when you're when you're flying internationally. Uh, but uh, do you credit your Starlines flights to a Gian, or after you're in the lounge, do you uh, change to United or uh, Lufthansa or another Starlines program? No, I, I I do actually credit everything here. They used to have the uh, one of my favorite redemptions, which was forty five thousand miles. Uh, business class between U.S. and Europe. In Europe, they classify as Europe and North Africa, which you know how those type of things work. They You don't learn geography by studying an, uh, an airline's award region chart because North Africa contained Israel. So they were actually the cheapest for a long time. You could fly from the U.S. or actually technically you could fly from Trinidad in central, it's just above South America, but that's the lowest point that they still count as North America. You could fly from there to Israel for 45,000 miles in business class, but uh, they've since upped that to 55. So it's not as good as it used to be before, but there's still some sweet spots with them. So I, I like to credit everything to them. Um, I, <laughs> I've actually never shared the story in the blog, but 
I, I lost a few hundred thousand miles with them a couple of years ago because of, it was, it was a long story. I'll end up sharing it on the blog sometime, but even in spite of that, I still like crediting uh, anything Star Alliance, I credit to them. And uh, so I still use them for a lot. And mo most of my redemptions are US, Europe, or vice versa. Fantastic. Well, uh, during the pandemic, we like to finish each episode of the manifesto with the core question of the week. Are you ready for this week's question? I am. So you've been living outside the United States for several years now. And this week's core question of the week is when you have been outside the United States for a long time, what craving do you have that is absolutely impossible to satisfy in Greece or if you prefer, what's the absolute first thing you do when you get back? What itch do you absolutely have to scratch when you land in the United States? I'm from Western New York, so I, I know that a lot of people might argue with this, but nobody can do buffalo wings like they can in Western New York. So that's a big one. Uh, and pizza goes right along with it. They have some decent pizza here, but it's nothing like it's nothing like the pizza we have in Western New York. So yeah, those two things right there are top of my list. And strangely enough, Walking into like a Best Buy, uh, <laughs> the all-in-one type electronics place that they have similar, but not the same. And my old days, I used to buy so many open box things to flip. So yeah, I like a quick run in there to see what's what's available to throw up online while I'm, while I'm in town. Thanks again to Charlie Barkowski from the Running With Miles blog. You've been listening to The Manifesto with Gideon, the frequent flyer on the Milonomics Podcast Network. Goodbye. And good luck.